Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Mark Pryor's sharply plotted Hugo Marston mysteries combine the gritty reality of underworld crime with gorgeous Paris settings that revel in French life, old and new. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Mark talks about reader expectations, the importance of craft and his recent addition to Hugo's American Embassy Network, a transgender security agent. But before we talk to Mark, just a reminder that the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Mark's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Mark. Hello there, Mark, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hey, uh, nice to be on. Thank you so much for having me. Beginning at the beginning, as I always like to do, was there a once upon a time moment when you decided you wanted to write fiction? And if so, was there some sort of catalyst for it? You know, yes, actually. It was when I was in primary school uh, in England. Um, I remember that my teacher, Mrs. G- Mrs. Garwood, uh, she had two notebooks she had us write in. One was for things that actually happened to us, news, and the other was for uh, stories, fictional stories, things we just you know invented. And um, at the end of at the beginning of one one term after the summer holidays, she asked us to write in the news book about some stuff that we'd done. And so I did. I wrote about a haystack I'd played on on, on the family farm with my best friend, um, and about how we'd been attacked by alligators and we'd had to fight them off with sticks. Um, and I wrote all this in my news book and not my fiction book. And uh, you know what she said? She said absolutely nothing about it. Um, and she gave me a, a gold star. So. You know, I always think of that as a a great moment of encouragement for me. You know, I look back at that and I remember that, uh, and that and that would be a that would be a kickoff point for me. I think. Did, did you actually realize at that point that you were writing fiction in a news book? Did you actually know the difference? I think I think probably what happened was I started to write something true because we did play on the haystack, but then realized that that was kind of boring and wow couple of alligators would make this a lot more interesting. (laughs) That's lovely. I can see that on your website sometime. A couple of alligators will make this more interesting. (laughs) Right, yeah, just throw in a couple of alligators, see what happens. They could turn up in the same. So why did you choose the mystery genre? You wanted to write, but why mysteries? And and also why contemporary Paris is your setting? Uh, I think mysteries because those are the books that I always read. Uh, I grew up on on uh, Agatha Christie and Sherlock Holmes. Well, before that, I guess the Hardy Boys, uh, the Three Investigators. I just was always drawn to reading mysteries, um, and so I, I just it was a, a natural thing for me when I decided to write would be to to write a, a mystery novel, um, and and so well as for for why Paris, <laughs> I do get asked that question, and and I usually answer it by saying. Um, I have a friend who sets his novels in uh, sort of a rundown town in uh, in 
rural New York, and another friend who sets her books in East Texas. And guess who has the most fun doing research? <laughs> uh, I I have been to Paris probably probably knocking on twenty times, um, and I try to go every single year to do research for the fresh book. And I love the city. I love everything about it. And, and setting a novel there uh, or a series makes perfect sense to me because it means I have to go every year. Yes, and I think there definitely is quite a big genre which is actually French mysteries now, or mysteries based in France, but written in English. Yeah, there are a few of us who are doing it now. Martin Walker, Kara um, Black, of course, does writes love books. So uh, a few of us have figured out the secret and, and the fun places to do the research. But uh, yes. So your hero, Hugo Marston, he's head of security at the American Embassy in Paris. So, you know, sort of perhaps this, process of reduction so you've got your mystery and you've got your setting how did Hugo come to life yeah um that, the, the way I answer that question usually in front of a group of people is so it's ask them to ha put their hands up who knows what the head of security at the U.S. Embassy does and inevitably nobody does uh and the simple truth is that when I invented Hugo I didn't know either um but what I needed was a character who could involve himself in uh crimes and get involved with the local police department or the Paris police department uh, and get, get stuck in and help solve crimes. So I needed somebody who lived there permanently as well, of course, because I knew I wanted this to be a series. Um, and after just a very small amount of poking around, it struck me that to have him work at the embassy would have him in Paris full time and to have him do some sort of security police job would let him get involved with the cops and, and, uh, and so that's what I started with. Once the first novel, The Bookseller, came out, I actually had the courage because, it, you know, as you probably know, um, authors don't see themselves as authors until they have a book published. We're all a bit insecure that way. Um, but once, once the first book came out, I actually wrote to the State Department and my email found its way to the uh, cultural attache, I think he was at the time, at the, at the embassy in Paris. And he invited me to come visit. Um, and so sure enough, uh, <laughs> a couple of weeks later, my wife and I hopped on a plane, went over there and spent, um, three or four hours actually with the, with, in the security office talking to, unfortunately the, the head guy, the Hugo wasn't there, but we talked to his deputy for some time about the role, what they did, that kind of thing. And, um, turns out I got most of it right. So that was kind of lucky. Yes. Although probably with your journalistic experience I thought that that might have helped with drafting that character too in fact I wondered if you'd ever brushed up against the head of security in your role in journalism but obviously not no it was it was purely purely an invention um and the, the funny thing is that the, the one thing that I really wanted to know um because I have you know in the books I have Hugo most of the time carrying his gun with him uh I I said to this guy I said hey do you you know do you have um do you carry your gun when you're off duty just walking around Paris and he said, well, you know, we have, uh, we have, every embassy has an arrangement with the local government. They, they basically sit down and negotiate and figure out what they want to do, whether they want to allow that or not. So I said, okay, but do you, do you, you know, as an RSO, do you, do you carry your gun when you're going around Paris? And he said, well, you know, like I said, we, we, we meet, meet with the, with the authorities and see what they want us to do. And if they're comfortable with it, you know, then, then that's something that can happen. And I said, dude, do you carry your gun around Paris? <laughs> 
Because he's a diplomat, right? He's trying to dodge the question. And he said, uh, he said, well, what do you have Hugo doing? I said, I, yeah, I have him I have him carrying his gun. He goes, well, I wouldn't say that you're altogether wrong. <laughs> that was my answer, and I went with it. And you've taken him to London and Barcelona as well in later books, haven't you? I guess that's all part of keeping him fresh and having as developing him over a half a dozen books. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's important to try and keep things um, fresh, as you say, and, and do going to, to London uh, was, you know, part of that. And likewise for Barcelona. Um, although I don't tell anybody, it may be that I, I take him places where I want to go on vacation. That's, that's also possible. Um, uh, so, but I think mostly my editor and, and readers generally seem to like to see him stay in Paris. So mostly that's what we're going to do. I think keep him there, which Honestly, there's no hardship for me whatsoever. Actually, this is diverting a little bit from our script, but Cara Black's taken some of her readers, I think, to Paris and almost acted as a bit of a guide for them. Would you ever think about doing something like that? I was doing that just about three weeks ago. Oh, were you? Yeah. It was a, it's a group who, who operate out of the Politics and Prose Bookstore in D.C. Um, they're the ones that, that took care to do that, and they invited me uh, in last month. Uh, beginning of July to do that. So I went over and spent a week with them and there was a, a dozen of, of my readers and we we spent the week together. It was just fantastic. Took took them to three or four places in the books and, and you know, had drinks, and dinner with them. It was just fantastic. Oh, I, that's my idea of a perfect holiday. So <laughs> that sounds gorgeous. Mine too, yeah. So you, you obviously then have a good chance to, to knit in with your reader expectations. I was interested to see you referring at one at one point to a reader's outrage when you killed off one of the, your characters. And and uh, and I was wondering about Hugo's love life too because, you know, there's a tempting woman there and he, and it never seems to kind of advance very far and you're always on hooks about where it's going to go. Um, tell me a bit about managing reader expectations and how much you listen to them. Yeah, um, I, I listened, well, how do I put this nicely? <clears throat> I um I, I spent some time with with uh, an author called Philip Kerr who unfortunately passed away recently, um, who writes a very well known series, uh, and he and he sort of bristled somewhat at readers expecting various things, um, and you know when he was criticised for making a mistake in one of his books, you know he sort of said well if you want a computer to, if you want a perfect book get a get a robot to write it sort of thing. Um, and I think what he was saying was, uh, you know, do, do the best you can, um, do what you need to do to write a book. And basically there's always going to be somebody who's unhappy, uh, which, you know, was the case when, when I killed off that character, I had a, a very loyal reader up till then who was very upset. Fortunately, I, I managed to meet with her in a bookstore and explain, you know, some of the circumstances and she was fine after that. Um, but I do, you know, I get, I get questions. I think readers generally are very happy to, to let the author sort of take the lead and, and write the story that they need to write. You know, initially some people complained a little bit about uh, my character, Tom Green, and his colorful language. Um, and, and maybe he's been less, less colorful in some ways since. Uh, and that's fine. You know, I, I, I welcome feedback from, you know, positive and negative. Uh, it's just a question of what I take on board and what, and what I think suits the series. Um, but as far as, you know, the characters, you know, you're right. I do have 
Claudia and Hugo having a sort of on again, off again. Uh, but I like that. You know, Hugo's a, a guy who's been married twice. Um, he's a little bit gun shy, I suppose. Uh, and Claudia herself, you know, she's a strong, very independent woman uh, and doesn't want to give up that independence. So it keeps a little bit of tension, hopefully, between the two of them, especially when she or he decides to start seeing other people. I was a little bit worried in the last one I wrote that she was going to have a secret affair with Tom on the side. There was almost a little... (laughs) (laughs) I thought, if that happened, what would I think? (laughs) You know, that's never even crossed my mind, but now you've put it in my head. I don't know what I should do with that. I thought you might almost be setting it up just in a subtle sort of way, but that must be me just being super suspicious. (laughs) You know, Jenny, what might happen is that, that it may look like it, but it would be like an April Fool's joke that they would be playing on Hugo. <laughs> yeah. Which now that you say it, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> I should do I that. I did think, <laughs> I did think, I don't think he'd have that line crossed because I think it would just, you know, spoil something integral to the story. Yeah, no, yeah. I agree. I think, I don't think either Claudia or, Tom, or even Tom would go, would, would mm-hmm. do that. I, I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're an Englishman living in Austin, Texas, who still works as a prosecutor, I think, in the district attorney's office. And I've read that you do all your writing in a local library. Is that still the case? Yeah, actually, um, I, I, I do some in my local library, which is about a mile away. And then I just discovered recently another library that's about a 15 minute drive, but it's in the Texas Hill Country. And it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful library. It's super quiet. And it's got some really comfortable chairs next to large windows that overlook the hill country. Um, and it's really just the most relaxing, peaceful place. Um, so I've started going there as well. So really, I'm, I'm writing my books in two libraries. Um, and and this, the funny thing is the new library, um, I went to introduce myself and give them a few copies of my books. And apparently, they'd just been talking about me because they were looking at bringing some writers in to do some workshops and, and they knew I was local. So um, that was a lot of fun to meet those guys and, and they're actually mentioned in my acknowledgements of the book that's coming out in January. So that precludes you doing your writing at 4 a.m. or 10, a, 10 p.m., I guess. Yes, I'm a, I, I enjoy my sleep very much. Um, I would be horrible at writing at 4 a.m. and I, I admire writers who can go past 10 p.m. as well. I just... Um, can't do it. Can't do it. I have to have to have my sleep. So that means, is it set a lot of Saturdays? Yeah, I do. Typically, I'll do um, a couple hours in the in the afternoon on Saturday, and probably a couple hours in the afternoon on Sunday. Um, I tend to write quite quickly uh, because I think a couple of reasons. One is the journalism uh, being used to write to deadline, and the other is being a lawyer. I, I kind of am quite precise. When I write, you know, the first draft is usually pretty, pretty close to the final thing, so I don't have to do a lot of, a lot of rewriting. Um, and then when I'm not writing, you know, if I'm driving to work or whatever, I'm, I'm thinking about what's coming next. So by the time I sit down, I'm essentially ready to go. Um, someone asked me to write a piece about uh, writer's block. You know, just give my, you know, talk about how I deal with writer's block. And I, I laughed and said, I wasn't, I said, I can't write that article. I'm sorry. I, I don't have writer's block because I don't have time for it. Um, which is the truth. I, I, you know, having a couple of hours here and there, 
Uh, I just don't have a chance to to sit down and twiddle my thumbs and wonder what's coming next. I have to get on with it. Mm, yeah. In one of the later books, I think it's book six, you feature a character named Michael Harmuth. Now, there's a touching story attached to him, which um, I, he was a real person who was a great fan of yours, and you came yes. to end up including him as a character in the book. Could you tell us a little yes. bit about that story? It was so touching, really. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so generally speaking, I, I, I don't like coming up with names for characters. I don't like thinking of names. Um, and so quite often I'll use the names of friends. Uh, and the way Michael's name got into the book, his daughter actually contacted me. Um, she works in a book sh- bookstore in Wisconsin. And she had sent me an email saying that her dad, Michael, was a big fan of the series um, but that he had cancer and she didn't think that he was going to make it, um, until the publication of the next book. And so she wondered if there was any way I could get an advanced copy because we were in the editing stages. And so I, you know, I, I called my editor and I said, Hey, you know, please, please send me an arc as soon as you can. Um, and he sent it to me and then I, I wrote something in the front for Michael, sent it on to him. Um, and you'll forgive me if I choke up telling the story. Yes, we will. And he was, you know, thrilled to pieces to get the book. But he would email me every now and again. He'd say, oh, but I'm reading it slowly. Can I get finished with it? Um, and so I, I just thought, well, uh, you know, why not uh, do something a little more? And so I wrote to him and I said, um, you know, since you're a fan, <clears throat> why, don't, why don't we put you in the book, make you a character, have a Michael Harmouth in the book? And he loved that idea. He, he jumped at that. And I said, you know what? I've never done this for anybody. And, that, and that's true. I said, I will let you choose who you want to be. You can be good guy, bad guy, witness, whatever you want to be. Um, and I probably shouldn't reveal his role, should I, Jenny? <laughs> no, no, that would probably ruin the book. But um, I will tell you, yeah, he, uh, he, he chose his role. And I, I wrote it up that way. And since then, I have a chance to meet with his daughter um, at, a, at a mystery convention. And we had drinks together and a big hug. And uh, it's nice. It's nice, you know, as I told him, as I told Michael, I said, you know, this way you get to, to live a bit longer and hang out with Hugo and his friends and, you know, cause a little bit of mischief if you want to. That is gorgeous. That is really gorgeous. Well, you know, it's a, it's a nice thing to do. It's a, very, it's a very easy thing for me to do to make to make you know, him a little happier, make his family a little happier. So to me, it was a, a win-win all around. Yes, yeah. So now Hugo is working closely with a transgender police officer, Lieutenant yes. Camille. And did you have to do a lot of research to write that character? Yes and no. I mean, I did to some degree. I've always been interested in, um, you know, equal rights for for LGBTQ people, Um and so it's not something I'm, that's totally alien to me. I mean, as a <laughs> straight white guy, on the other hand, it is. Um, I had some concerns initially because, <clears throat> you know, I contacted my editor and I said, hey, this, I'm thinking about doing this. And I, I just sort of said to him, look, this is, this is the world we live in. Um, there are a lot of trans people. Um, and I think books should generally reflect the world in which they're set. And he was just like, yeah, well, you're, what are you talking to me for? Go for it. It's your book. Um, and so I, so I created Camille, um, but I've also tried not to make a big deal about it. You know, um, she's a, she's a character. She's, she's one of four or five major characters. Um, and I don't, I don't want to 
you know, write a political screed or try and change people's minds about things or, or, you know, even necessarily be a, a train for educating people. But, um, I just, I just thought it would be interesting and, and relevant uh, and appropriate to have, to have someone like that in the book. And, and I love how she's developed and a lot of people really, really like having her in there. I've had zero uh, negative feedback about that, which which I'm delighted about. Says speaks very highly of my readers. I think. Yeah, that's great. Now, if readers wanted to discover Hugo's Paris, where would you suggest they go? Ah, uh, definitely the cemeteries, mm-hmm. um, because they are so much like little, very quiet villages, mm-hmm. but they're they're relaxing, they're peaceful, they're not really creepy at all. Um, they're so full of history. I mean, the, all of the major Cemeteries, uh, Montmartre, and uh, you know, obviously Père Lachaise have so many historic mm. figures in them. It's just fascinating mm. to visit, and it's visually beautiful. It's the little, little spaces of, of calm and quiet in, in a very busy city. Um, definitely recommend those. And generally, the the sixth arrondissement where Hugo lives, Rue Jacob. I always walk down that street every time I go to Paris. Um, you know, with all its its cafes and uh, little shops, little art studios. Um, those, those really are the, the main places I would go. Not not the Eiffel Tower, not the Louvre, not not the tourist mm-hmm. traps. That sounds great. You've branched out in more recent times, and you've done some other books apart from um, Hugo and psychological thrillers. I think you've done two of them so far. The most recent one was your book this year, Dominic, and I, I found it amusing because. Dominic is a charming Englishman, a prosecutor, and a musician in Austin, Texas. And I almost want to jokingly say to you, you're not thinking of taking up music, are you? <laughs> uh, that would be a very bad idea for everybody. No, I can neither sing nor play an instrument, and nobody wants me to try. But but you are moving more into thrillers, so would you like to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not so much – I'm not abandoning Hugo in any way. I, I want to – you know, that series is going to keep going. But I did have – I've always had an interest in the criminal mind, in um, psychopaths, uh, sociopaths, how they operate, how they think. And so the first book, Hollow Man, was, uh, you know, an exploration of that. It was it was me seeing if I, you know, because Hugo is such a nice guy. I mean, he's, he's just a really good human being. And I, I thought, well, what, you know, can I write a character who's not, who's, who's the opposite, who is literally you know, soulless. Mm. Uh, and so the, the first book, Hollow Man was supposed to be a, a standalone. Um, and then I had kind of an idea for a sequel. Uh, and now I'm banging around an idea for, uh, for the third one to make it a trilogy, but we'll have to see. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So moving to a more general focus away from specific books, what one thing have you done perhaps more than any other that has helped you make this writing career a success? I, I think I think any any small success I've had may have been come out of the fact that I have written quite a few books in a short period of time. Um, you know, when when you when authors poke around the internet, they're always looking for advice on how to increase sales, uh, increase readership. And the one thing that that pops up all the time is, you know, the best mm-hmm. the best marketing is writing another book. Because every time we write another book, you know, re- people review it, stores, you know, move it to the front of the, uh, the shelves. 
uh, and readers, if if they can be they can be voracious. I mean, even now when I have one book per year, in fact, when I had two Hugo books per year, I would get messages from people saying, "When's the next Hugo? I'm waiting for the next Hugo." Um, and it's 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 wonderful. And so I think if you know if you write a series, uh, the best thing you can do is just to keep the books coming. Um, I've, I've slowed down, as it were, to one a year, and I get loads of messages asking me when the next one's coming out. So I think, I think, I, I think it was, has worked out well for me that for the first you know, six books, they, they all came out in fairly quick succession because the first one was October 2012, um, and what the eighth one comes out the beginning of next year. So uh, put it, putting them out quickly, yes. I think, has been very helpful. And I guess if people discover you and like you, it gives them a reason to stick around, doesn't it? They they don't forget your name. That's exactly right. Yeah, and I think that's what, I think that's a large part of it. They just they, they remember, um, mm-hmm. and 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 also you know they get invested. They get really invested in the characters mm. uh, and in, in the storylines. And so if, if you keep them keep them coming, they'll they'll keep buying them. It's, Turning to Mark as reader, because we do the premise for this show is partly series books, and the, there is a bit of a phenomenon with with digital publishing now that people can just buy a whole lot and read them in succession. But have you ever been a binge reader yourself? And who currently would you be reading that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Oh gosh, um, I, when I was younger, I was absolutely a binge reader, uh, and in fact, my a couple of my kids are sort of that way inclined when they're not distracted by electronics. Uh, unfortunately, these days, with the job, with the kids, with the writing, I don't get to read nearly as much as I'd like to. Um, but, uh, but on vacation, we just, we just had a vacation. I think I got through seven books. Uh, yeah, it's, and it was, it was such a pleasure. It was, made me very, very happy. Um, and as for who I'm reading, gosh, uh, the, the aforementioned Philip Kerr um, is a, his, his, Bernie Gunther books are fantastic. Uh, let me see who else. Um, Jamie Mason has two books out and a third one coming out next year, I think. Um, she's a wonderful writer, ton of French, read everything. Um, and a big fan of Alan first as well. Yes. Yeah. Trying to think that's, that's Jenny Hillier. Jennifer Hillier is, uh, writes wonderful books, thrillers. Um, so many that's the problem isn't it there are just so many the one series that i always i always pick up and read is uh by james ziskin oh yes i've i've had him on the podcast actually he's fun mm. yeah yeah frightful fellow frightful fellow but uh <laughs> no <clears throat> he comes whenever he comes and does a signing here in austin he stays with me but i genuinely enjoy his books they're great it's a great series ellie stone yes yeah that's wonderful look we're sort of coming to the end of our time so circling back from the beginning looking looking over the whole life, you know, whole writing life, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all again, what would you change, if anything? What would I change? You know what I probably would do? I would probably pay more attention to the mechanics of writing, to the craft of writing. Uh, and I say that because I, I went back, I mean, my, my story basically didn't begin with the bookseller. That, that was just my first book that I got published. Uh, before that, I wrote three entire novels that got rejected by agents hundreds of times over. Um, and, I, and I've gone back since and looked at those books, and I see why they were rejected. That makes perfect sense. So I think, I think looking back, I would have 
worked a little harder to become a better writer um, before submitting any work. Uh, there's a, you know, I feel like I'm still learning. Uh, every time I read a good a good novel, it teaches me something. And I think I think that's something that I will, I, you know, I tell other people too is always study the craft, mm, mm-hmm. know the rules, and then discard them if you want to, but know what they are, sort of thing. Yes, yeah. And what is next for Mark the writer? Well, um, I just finished a standalone novel that my agent has. Uh, it's it's uh, set in the First World War and Second World War, so it's a sort of a, a dual timeline, and that's again crime fiction um, set in France. Surprise, surprise. Uh, so we'll see. She's going to hopefully try and find a, find a place for that. Uh, then I'm sort of turning my eyes towards the new year, January of next year, when I have the new Hugo Marston book comes out. Um, and that's called The Book Artist, uh, set in the Montmartre district of Paris. And I think that I'm going to do a little book tour around the, the north of uh, North America. So... Uh, that's going to be pretty exciting. Fantastic. And that one that you mentioned, the one set in Montmartre, you've got that on pre-order, have you? So That that is now available for pre-order on if you go to, you know, the usual, wherever you buy books, um, they should have a link to it. You can pre-order it, absolutely. So where can readers find you online? I am on Twitter, Mark, at Mark Pryor Books. Um, I have a website, markpryorbooks.com. And I also have an author page on Facebook. So I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, if you go to my website, there's a mailing list too, which um, I know people are a little hesitant to go on. But I've, I've had the mailing list set up for a year, and I have never <laughs> sent anything out. So if you're afraid of being spammed, you needn't be, because you will get maybe one email a year from me. Um, and... Uh, so yeah, I'm pretty easy to find, and if any, you know, if anybody sends me a message, I always respond. I uh, love interacting with with readers. So um, yeah, that that's me on lovely. the web. Well, Mark, it's been a delight talking to you. It really has, and you should put out a newsletter uh, uh, if you are ever going to do another tour in Paris, just so that people um, know that it's coming up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I should. It's. Uh, there's so many things I should be doing, Jenny, so many things. And, and I just want to thank you for having me on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, that's fine. And just getting back to that, I guess the bookshop itself could have filled those dozen places without having to even advertise it. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, they, yeah, they did all the marketing work, fortunately. Yeah, yeah. Look, wonderful. Thank you so much, Mark. And we'll look forward to your progress with interest. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jenny. I really appreciate it. Bye now. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com 
or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.